Section 12 of Your Mind and How to Use It by William Walker Atkinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Deductive Reasoning. We have seen in the preceding chapter that from particular facts we reason inductively to general principles or truths. We have also seen that one of the steps of inductive reasoning is the testing of the hypothesis by deductive reasoning. We shall now also see that the results of inductive reasoning are used as premises or bases for deductive reasoning. These two forms of reasoning, these two forms of reasoning are opposites and yet complementary to each other. They are, in a sense, independent and yet are interdependent. Brooks says, the two methods of reasoning are the reverse of each other. One goes from particulars to generals, the other from generals to particulars. One is a process of analysis, the other is a process of synthesis. One rises from facts to laws, the other descends from laws to facts. Each is independent of the other, and each is a valid and essential method of inference. Halleck well expresses the spirit of deductive reasoning as follows. After induction has classified certain phenomena, and thus given us a major premise, we may proceed deductively to apply the inference to any new specimen that can be shown to belong to that class. Induction hands over to deduction a ready-made premise. Deduction takes that as a fact, making no inquiry regarding its truth. Only after general laws have been laid down, after objects have been classified, after major premises have been formed, can deduction be employed. Deductive reasoning proceeds from general principles to particular facts. It is a descending process, analytical in its nature. It rests upon the fundamental axiomatic basis that whatever is true of the whole is true of its parts, or whatever is true of the universal is true of the particulars. The process of deductive reasoning may be stated briefly as follows. 1. A general principle of a class is stated as a major premise. 2. A particular thing is stated as belonging to that general class, this statement being the minor premise. Therefore, 3. The general class principle is held to apply to the particular thing, this last statement being the conclusion. A premise is a proposition assumed to be true. The following gives us an illustration of the above process. 1. Major premise. A bird is a warm-blooded, feathered, winged, oviparous vertebrate. 2. Minor premise. The sparrow is a bird, therefore, 3. Conclusion. The sparrow is a warm-blooded, feathered, winged, oviparous vertebrate. Or, again, 1. Major premise. Rattlesnakes frequently bite when enraged, and their bite is poisonous. 2. Minor premise. This snake before me is a rattlesnake. Therefore, 3. Conclusion. This snake before me may bite when enraged, and its bite will be poisonous. The average person may be inclined to object that he is not conscious of going through this complicated process when he reasons about sparrows or rattlesnakes, but he does, nevertheless. 
he is not conscious of the steps because mental habit has accustomed him to the process and it is performed more or less automatically but these three steps manifest in all processes of deductive reasoning even the simplest the average person is like the character in the french play who was surprised to learn that he had been talking prose for forty years without knowing it jevons says that the majority of persons are equally surprised when they find out that they have been using logical forms more or less correctly without having realized it he says a large number even of educated persons have no clear idea of what logic is yet in a certain way everyone must have been a logician since he began to speak there are many technical rules and principles of logic which we cannot attempt to consider here there are however a few elementary principles of correct reasoning which should have a place here what is known as a syllogism is the expression in words of the various parts of the complete process of reasoning or argument waitley defines it as follows a syllogism is an argument expressed in strict logical form so that its conclusiveness is manifest from the structure of the expression alone without any regard to the meaning of the term in short if the two premises are accepted as correct it follows that there can be only one true logical conclusion resulting therefrom in abstract or theoretical reasoning the word if is assumed to precede each of the two premises the therefore before the conclusion resulting from the if of course the following are the general rules governing the syllogism one every syllogism must consist of three and no more than three propositions namely one the major premise two the minor premise and three the conclusion two the conclusion must naturally follow from the premises otherwise the syllogism is invalid and constitutes a fallacy or sophism three one premise at least must be affirmative four if one premise is negative the conclusion must be negative five one premise at least must be universal or general six if one premise is particular the conclusion also must be particular the last two rules five and six contain the essential principles of all the rules regarding syllogisms and any syllogism which breaks them will be found also to break other rules some of which are not stated here for the reason that they are too technical these two rules may be tested by constructing syllogisms in violation of their principles the reason for them is as follows rule five because from two particular premises no conclusion can be drawn as for instance one some men are mortal two john is a man we cannot reason from this either that john is or is not mortal the major premise should read all men rule six because a universal conclusion can be drawn only from two universal premises an example being needless here as a conclusion is so obvious cultivation of reasoning faculties there is no royal road to the cultivation of the reasoning faculties there is but the old familiar rule practice exercise use nevertheless 
there are certain studies which tend to develop the faculties in question. The study of arithmetic, especially mental arithmetic, tends to develop correct habits of reasoning from one truth to another, from cause to effect. Better still is the study of geometry, and best of all, of course, is the study of logic and the practice of working out its problems and examples. The study of philosophy and psychology also is useful in this way. Many lawyers and teachers have drilled themselves in geometry solely for the purpose of developing their logical reasoning powers. Brooks says, So valuable is geometry as a discipline that many lawyers and others review their geometry every year in order to keep the mind drilled to logical habits of thinking. The study of logic will aid in the development of the power of deductive reasoning. It does this, first, by showing the method by which we reason. To know how we reason, to see the laws which govern the reasoning process, to analyse the syllogism and see its conformity to the laws of thought, is not only an exercise of reasoning, but gives that knowledge of the process that will be both a stimulus and a guide to thought. No one can trace the principles and processes of thought without receiving thereby an impetus to thought. In the second place, the study of logic is probably even more valuable because it gives practice in deductive thinking. This, perhaps, is its principal value, since the mind reasons instinctively without knowing how it reasons. One can think without the knowledge of the science of thinking, just as one can use language correctly without a knowledge of grammar. Yet as the study of grammar improves one's speech, so the study of logic can but improve one's thought. In the opinion of the writer hereof, one of the best, though simple, methods of cultivating the faculties of reasoning is to acquaint oneself thoroughly with the more common fallacies or forms of false reasoning, so thoroughly that not only is the false reasoning detected at once, but also the reason of its falsity is readily understood. To understand the wrong ways of reasoning is to be on guard against them. By guarding against them, we tend to eliminate them from our thought processes. If we eliminate the false, we have the true left in its place. Therefore, we recommend the weeding of the logical garden of the common fallacies, to the end that the flowers of pure reason may flourish in their stead. Accordingly, we think it well to call to your attention in the next chapter to the more common fallacies and the reason of their falsity. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28 Fallacious Reasoning A fallacy is defined as an unsound argument or mode of arguing which, while appearing to be decisive of a question, is in reality not so, or a fallacious statement or proposition in which the error is not readily apparent. When a fallacy is used to deceive others, it is called sophistry. It is important that the student should understand the nature of the fallacy and understand its most common forms. As Jevons says, in learning how to do right, it is always desirable to be informed as to the ways in which we are likely to go wrong. In describing to a man the road which he should follow, we ought to tell him not only the turnings which he is to take, but also the turnings which he is to avoid. Similarly, it is a useful part of logic 
which teaches us the ways and turnings by which people most commonly go astray in reasoning. In presenting the following brief statement regarding the more common forms of fallacy, we omit, so far as possible, the technical details which belong to textbooks on logic. Fallacies 1. True collective but false particular an example of this fallacy is found in the argument that because the French race, collectively, are excitable, therefore a particular Frenchman must be excitable, or that because the Jewish race, collectively, are good business people, therefore the particular Jew must be a good businessman. This is as fallacious as arguing that because a man may drown in the ocean, he should avoid the bath, basin, or cup of water. There is a vast difference between the whole of a thing and its separate parts. Nitric acid and glycerin, separately, are not explosive, but, combined, they form nitroglycerin, a most dangerous and powerful explosive. Reversing this form of illustration, we remind you of the old saying, Salt is a good thing, but one doesn't want to be put in pickle. 2. Irrelevant Conclusion this fallacy consists in introducing in the conclusion matter not contained in the premises, or in the confusing of the issue. For instance, 1. All men are sinful. 2. John Smith is a man. Therefore, 3. John Smith is a horse thief. This may sound absurd, but many arguments are as fallacious as this, and for the same reason, or another and more subtle form. 1. All thieves are liars. 2. John Smith is a liar. Therefore, 3. John Smith is a thief. The first example arises from the introduction of new matter, and the last from the confusion of the issue. 3. False cause. This fallacy consists in attributing cause to a thing which is merely coincident with, or precedent to, the effect. For instance, 1. The cock crows just before or at the moment of sunrise. Therefore, 2. The cock crowing is the cause of the sunrise. Or, again, 1. Bad crops follow the election of a Whig president. Therefore, 2. The Whig party is the cause of the bad crops. Or, again, 1. Where civilization is the highest, there we find the greatest number of high hats. Therefore, 2. High hats are the cause of civilization. 4. Circular reasoning. In this form of fallacy, the person reasoning or arguing endeavors to explain or prove a thing by itself or its own terms. For instance, 1. The Whig Party is honest because it advocates honest principles. 2. The Whig principles are honest because they are advocated by an honest party. A common form of this fallacy, in its phase of sophistry, is the use of synonyms in such a manner that they seem to express more than the original conception, whereas they are really but other terms for the same thing. An historical example of circular reasoning is the following. 1. The Church of England is the true Church, because it was established by God. 2. It must have been established by God, because it is the true Church. This form of sophistry is most effective when employed in long arguments in which it is difficult to detect it. 5. Begging the Question 
This fallacy arises from the use of a false premise, or at least of a premise the truth of which is not admitted by the opponent. It may be stated, simply, as the unwarranted assumption of a premise, generally the major premise. Many persons in public life argue in this way. They boldly assert an unwarranted premise, and then proceed to argue logically from it. The result is confusing to the average person, for, the steps of reasoning being logical, it seems as if the argument is sound, the fact of the unwarranted premise being overlooked. The person using this form of sophistry proceeds on Aaron Burr's theory of truth being that which is boldly asserted and plausibly maintained. Bulwer makes one of his characters mention a particularly atrocious form of this fallacy, although an amusing one, in the following words. Whenever you are about to utter something astonishingly false, always begin with, it is an acknowledged fact, etc. Sir Robert Filmer was a master of this manner of writing. Thus, with what a solemn face that great man attempted to cheat, he would say, it is a truth undeniable that there cannot be any multitude of men whatsoever, either great or small, etc., but in that same multitude there is one man among them that in nature hath a right to be king of all the rest, as being the next heir of Adam. Look carefully for the major premise of propositions advanced in argument, spoken or written. Be sure that the person making the proposition is not begging the question by the unwarranted assumption of the premise. General Rule of Inference Hislop says, concerning valid inferences and fallacious ones, we cannot infer anything we please from any premises we please. We must conform to certain definite rules or principles. Any violation of them will be a fallacy. There are two simple rules which should not be violated. One, the subject matter in the conclusion should be of the same general kind as in the premises. Two, the facts constituting the premises must be accepted and must not be fictitious. A close observance of these rules will result in the detection and avoidance of the principal forms of fallacious reasoning and sophistry. Sophistical Arguments There are a number of tricky practices resorted to by persons in argument that are fallacious in intent and result which we do not consider here in detail, as they scarcely belong to the particular subject of this book. A brief mention, however, may be permitted in the interest of general information. Here are the principal ones. 1. Arguing that a proposition is correct, because the opponent cannot prove the contrary. The fallacy is seen when we realise that the statement, the moon is made of green cheese, is not proved because we cannot prove the contrary. No amount of failure to disprove a proposition really proves it, and no amount of failure to prove a proposition really disproves it. As a general rule, the burden of proof rests upon the person stating the proposition, and his opponent is not called upon to disprove it, or else have it considered proved. The old cry of you cannot prove that it is not so is based upon a fallacious conception. 2. Abuse of the opponent, his party, or his cause. This is no real argument or reasoning. It is akin to proving a point by beating the opponent over the head. 3. Arguing 
that an opponent does not live up to his principles is no argument against the principles he advocates. A man may advocate the principle of temperance, and yet drink to excess. This simply proves that he preaches better than he practices. But the truth of the principle of temperance is not affected in any way thereby. The proof of this is that he may change his practices, and it cannot be held that the change of his personal habits improves or changes the nature of the principle. 4. Argument of authority is not based on logic. Authority is valuable when really worthy, and merely as corroboration or adding weight. But it is not logical argument. The reasons of the authority alone constitute a real argument. The abuse of this form of argument is shown in the above reference to begging the question, in the quotation from Bulwer. 5. Appeal to prejudice, or public opinion, is not a valid argument, for public opinion is frequently wrong, and prejudice is often unwarranted. And, at the best, they have nothing to do with the case from the standpoint of logic. The abuse of testimony and claimed evidence is also worthy of examination, but we cannot go into the subject here. Fallacies of Prejudice But perhaps the most dangerous of all fallacies in the search for truth on the part of the most of us are those which arise from the following. 1. The tendency to reason from what we feel and wish to be true, rather than from the actual facts of the case which causes us, unconsciously, to assume the mental attitude of if the facts agree with our likes and pet theories, all is well. If they do not, so much the worse for the facts. 2. The tendency, in all of us, to perceive only the facts that agree with our theories and to ignore the others. We find that for which we seek and overlook that which does not interest us. Our discoveries follow our interest and our interest follows our desires and beliefs. The intelligent man or woman realises these tendencies of human nature and endeavours to avoid them in his or her own reasoning, but is keenly conscious of them in the arguments and reasoning of others. A failure to observe and guard oneself against these tendencies results in bigotry, intolerance, narrowness and intellectual astigmatism. End of chapter 28 End of section 12